Time to go behind the U one more time as we are joined by offensive coordinator Rhett Lashley. Rhett, appreciate you taking the time. We get to uh, take everyone behind the U and tell your story. Awesome, Josh. Thanks for having me. So I'm not going to bring up Gus Malzahn too many times, but we have to talk about him as, uh, as uh, I guess, I don't know, are you a disciple? What are, we, are we, what are we allowed to say? Well, he's my former high school coach. I mean, that from uh, I was a seventh grader at Shallow Christian High School when he came to my high school as the head coach. So seventh grade through my junior year, he was either coaching the system that we were running in junior high or obviously coaching me in high school. So, you know, everyone's got unique relationships that play football with their high school coaches. And uh, he's one of the two I had. And then obviously I've coached with him a lot since then. Was Gus Malzahn a name then? Was the offense he was running a thing then? Like, were you aware of what was happening then? No, uh, it was, I want to say it was like 1997. And Gus uh, was from a town in Arkansas, about 45 minutes south of where I grew up. I grew up in Northwest Arkansas and in Springdale, right where the University of Arkansas is. And, And Gus was from about an hour, 45 minutes south. And um, played high school football. He uh, was a punter in college at a small college in the state called Henderson State. And then he got out of college and he actually was a head coach at Hughes, Arkansas, which is over by Memphis. Really, really small school. And he got the job. He'll tell the story. He was pretty excited when he got the job because he interviewed for it to find out later he was the only one that interviewed. Um, and he really had no background, uh, you know, in coaching. And he grabbed the Delaware Wing T book, read it. It's kind of like, you know, coaching for dummies books and and coached for five years at Hughes. And he only had him and one other coach, you know, it was such a small school. And he was there five years in his fifth year. He took Hughes to the state championship game in the smallest classification. And uh, at the time, Shiloh Christian, where I went to school up in northwest Arkansas, had only had a football program since 1989. So about eight or nine years. And uh, Jimmy Dykes, who's actually uh, a big ESPN college yep. basketball analyst, was the athletic director then. Oh, really? Yeah, he was athletic director at my school, coached girls track and cross country, and they won state every year in girls track and cross country. But um, So he, he was charged with finding a new high school football coach at our high school, and uh, he ended up hiring Gus. So Gus did not have this, um, you know, he obviously was kind of a guy who was an up-and-coming coach with what he had just done at a place like Hughes, but he honestly did it around the wing tee. He came to my high school my seventh grade year. Um, I think he took us to the second round of the playoffs. Um, a guy named Josh Floyd was a sophomore quarterback. Uh, his younger brother and I were uh, in the same grade in seventh grade and grew up together. And, you know, it was funny. They were running just kind of a pro style, power eye, whatever you want to call it, offense. And they were getting beaten the second round of the playoffs, which at the time was the, the furthest our school had ever been. And they were down two or three scores late. And so they started no huddling, which is what you do when you're behind. And they scored, kicked an onside kick, got it, scored, got within a touchdown, still lost the game. But Gus in the offseason sat around and thought, you know, at the time, Dan Marino, you know, was in his prime, John Elway, Joe Montana, all these guys, Steve Young. And and you would watch those games in the NFL, right? And it'd be like 17 to 20. And then all of a sudden, in the last six minutes, both teams would start two-minute drill and score like three <laughs> touchdowns. And you're like, well, that coupled with the experience in the playoff game, Gus was like, why don't you just do this the whole time? And uh, so he took kind of his background in the wing tee, made it out of the shotgun, a run game. There was a really uh, prominent high school coach in the state of Arkansas, Barry Liney Sr., who had been throwing the ball for years, kind of ahead of his time. And uh, Gus visited with him and got a few pass plays, kind of put it all together, designed a no-huddle system. And really the rest is history in that regard because my eighth grade year, we started running no-huddle in eighth grade. 
in my eighth and ninth grade year, we were killing everybody. And the very next year in high school, uh, Shadow made it to the state championship game, led the country in total offense, actually lost in the state championship game. Um, but that started a string of, of five straight years going to the state championship game and, and winning championships and leading the, the, the country, not the state, the country in total offense. And uh, so that was kind of how it all got started for Gus and really how it all got started for me as well. So I did a little digging on you. You had state records. Uh, you had, you've had national records from, for a high school quarterback. Give me the details on the game you threw for 672 <laughs> yards. I thought this was a run offense. Yeah. No, it's, no, it's not. Actually, that's what people, you know, Gus has made it much more of a running style system for himself at Auburn over the years. But when I played for Gus and Chris Wood my senior year, who's another high school coach, I mean, I threw it 71 times in a game twice. Uh, we were playing fast. We were throwing it. Um, the game you're talking about, Junction City, my, my sophomore year, was the first year starting on varsity for me. And Shallow had just gone undefeated and won the state championship year before. And I was this young quarterback with some veteran guys back and kind of the expectations were high. And we were number one. Junction City was a, a really athletic team from down south. They were number two. We we're playing on Thanksgiving weekend. It was kind of the big game, but it was we'd kind of gotten the reputation that we were supposed to win, you know. And uh, we actually, the game was about to kick off. We'd already done warmups and the, this place was in the middle of nowhere that a, uh, someone had driven into a telephone pole and knocked the power out. So the power went out the stadium and we literally sat in the locker room for an hour before we even played. So the game didn't kick off till closer to 8.30 or nine. And before we knew it, we were down 24 to nothing. I mean, they were just a track meet. I threw an interception early. They were up and down the field. And I remember sitting on the sidelines two things. One, I thought I'm not ready to start basketball on Monday. And two, uh, at the time, Kevin Johnson was our defensive coordinator. And I remember Gus, after they scored to go up 24 to nothing, looked at, at, uh, at Kevin, our DC and said, I think they may score a hundred. <laughs> and our DC responded very confidently. Yep. I think they might. And, uh, <laughs> ironically we were behind and we, there was no scoreboard because of the power. They got the lights on, but the scoreboard was off and they were keeping clock on the field. And we just started playing. And uh, I think this was probably one of those games I threw it 71 times, but we found a way to come back and win 70 to 64. I don't think they stopped us again after it was 24 to nothing. What was that? Give me that again. 70 to 64. We scored with about two minutes left. We were down 64, 62. We scored and then went for two and and were able to hold them. And uh, I actually got a mild concussion midway through the second quarter. So I honestly was driving after the game back with my parents. My dad was asking me all these questions about the game. And I'm like, "I, I have no idea what happened. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was cool. We had a lot of good players and found a way to win. That was, it was a good memory. So a couple of things off of that story. And then what you mentioned before, right? So like the, if you think of this offense, the way it's known now, it's more of a power run offense, but as you said, originally, I guess that's a misnomer, right? And the statistics don't back that up. So, so what, what were this? So the seeds really of the offense were up tempo and throwing the football. Oh, absolutely. Now we always could run it too. I mean, if you, if you can throw the football at the clip, we were, you got some pretty good run boxes. So you didn't have to run it many times to gain a lot of yards rushing, but uh, yeah, it all started with uh, a very, what you'd consider almost pass happy um, tempo style of offense, but we ran the ball enough to be balanced. And then what was, I mean, you're a high school kid, so this might be an unfair question, but are people talking about this going, this is, man, this is, uh, this is great. This is creative. This is next level. Are they looking at going, what are they doing? Yeah, I think at the time, you know, you're talking my sophomore year was 1999. So it was probably from like the 97, 98 to about the 2003 window there that um, we were just putting up crazy numbers. And it was a time when 
no huddling and playing fast was kind of becoming a thing in Texas and there in Arkansas. It really hadn't taken hold all over the country. And uh, so it was a little bit kind of, of a pioneering way to do things, a little bit outside the box. So people hadn't adjusted to it. And um, so I think from the standpoint of, yeah, everybody started wanting to know what's going on there in Arkansas and, and, and what's happening when they see the numbers we were putting up. But, uh, you know, since then, it's kind of become the norm. Yeah, because I was thinking about that time, you look at like Miami, right? That's right around they, they, they win the 2001 championship. They go to the Fiesta Bowl and lose. But if you think of the offense, you go back and watch their film. It's pro style, under center, two backs, tight end, like complete opposite of, of, of that or even the NFL, right? You mentioned the quarterbacks before. It wasn't, you know, it was still tight ends and fullbacks and play action and all that stuff. Yeah, I always try to give an example of, of what, and, and like you said, Gus has evolved and, and ran the, runs the ball a lot more now, which is, I think is, is something that was great for me to be a part of. I, I'm a quarterback. I like to throw it a little bit more. So we're a little, probably a little more, it, right? we're probably a little more yeah. balanced. We we've tried to open up the passing game over the last couple of years, but and go back to playing with that tempo though, and playing fast and getting more plays. And I always equate it to I'm from Arkansas. I grew up there in the nineties. Nolan Richardson was the basketball coach there. And I was going to ask you about that. And if, if anybody knows, I mean, it was 40 minutes of hell was kind of their thing. And, and, you know, in 1994, Arkansas won the national title beating Duke. In 95, they went back into the championship game. And there was a span from about 85 to 2000 that Arkansas was one of the top 10 basketball teams in the country, winning percentage-wise. And they did it because they were different. And from the time the ball was tipped to the time it ended, they full-court pressed. They trapped. They pressed. They went crazy. Yeah, you'd get some plays on them, but they would turn you over. And what the whole thing was, two things for them we're going to get more shots than you. So we don't have to shoot as high of a percentage because if you shoot 50 times and we shoot 70 times, we can miss more and still beat you. And, uh, and then turning you over, gain those possessions. And the second thing was they always had this deal of it was 40 minutes of hell, but really they were going to win the last 10 minutes. They knew if they got you through 30 minutes, no matter what the score was, they were conditioned to play those last 10 minutes as frantically as they did the first 10. And you just weren't, I mean, it just, it, it was, it's kind of like nowadays, if you go against a triple option team, it's unusual. Well, that was the philosophy behind the no huddle system and playing fast still is to this day. You know, that's a big part of still what we want to do. We want to get more plays. We want to get more opportunities for our playmakers to touch the ball. And ultimately we want to wear teams down. And you've seen so far this year, we've been a lot better in the fourth quarter than most of the teams we play offensively. I think that has a little bit to do with that. Since you touched on Nolan Richardson and Arkansas in 40 minutes, hell, that's about my time of following college ball so growing up are you a basketball fan or a football fan in Arkansas what is Rhett Lashley growing up both both I mean if you if you grow I, you know I love football and, and if you're in the state of Arkansas it's a one it's pretty much a one school state you know there's not any pro teams it's the only major division one university so you grow up watching the Razorbacks in football especially and and Arkansas has a good football tradition but again, in my kind of was in the prime of my lifetime. I grew up when the men's basketball team there was as good as anybody. And so, so who are your guys on basketball? Like who was your favorite Arkansas hoops player, man? I mean, obviously before the national championship years, like in 1990, 91, 92, there was the trip. There was three guys, Todd day, Lee Mayberry and Oliver Miller. Yes, sir. Todd day four forty a night. Uh, Lee Mayberry was the, a, just a prototypical point guard, man, 10 plus dimes a game could shoot the three. And then Oliver Miller, don't get a lot of credit. I was at a game when they played LSU and, and he blocked Shaq to win the game at the buzzer. Um, you know, but then right after that, you got to think of the national championship runs in 94 and five with Corliss Williamson, big nasty and Scotty Thurman who hit the game winning shot and Corey Beck. So they had some great ones and uh, they've had a lot come through there since then. But it, 
I mean, I loved it, man. I grew up going to those games and, and obviously got the opportunity to go to school there and play for the football team down the road. But um, it was hard not to enjoy watching them play basketball in those days. Was going to Arkansas a dream come true? It was, but it's kind of funny how life works. It was, it was a dream come true, but it didn't happen the way I'd hoped. Um, you know, to your point, through my junior year, I'd, we'd put up some pretty good numbers, and I was getting recruited and getting offers from places like Tulsa and Middle Tennessee State and other places. And the schools like Arkansas and Oklahoma and Tennessee and some of those bigger schools were starting to really recruit me going into my senior year. And back then, nobody offered you as a junior hardly. Like, people, it was still kind of in that old, like until about 2005 or six, if you got offered as a junior or earlier, you were like very, very unique. Um, even the best players, coaches would come out spring recruiting of your junior year going into your senior year. And that's when all the offers then in, in the summer camps happened. And, you know, going into my senior year, um, I had a lot of opportunities and, you know, week two, we're actually playing a game in Razorback Stadium against Springdale High School, the big rival who we had tied the year before. Gus's last year was my coach, was my junior year, and um, we had tied him. It was a big deal. They were the massive, big, the biggest public school in the state, really good. We were kind of the up-and-coming private school that scored all the points and that no one ever thought we could play with them, and we did. In my senior year, we actually had everybody back. We were probably better than them, and Gus actually had left to go be the head coach at Springdale. And uh, it was actually one that he just had to do it. It was, it was just too good of an opportunity. And, and uh, I had a coach named Chris Wood, who was my junior high coach, became our high school coach. And so we're playing them week two. We're playing Gus and Springdale week two at the Razorback Stadium. And, you know, Arkansas and Oklahoma and Tennessee, all these coaches are there to watch. And, you know, I just knew we were going to beat them. And that was one of the few times I played safety that game too, because in big games, we were a smaller school. Some of us would play both ways. And on top of it, it was Gus's offense. Like I'm out there calling the plays every snap. I'm like, Hey, they're running the corner out here. Know they're it. doing this. They're doing that. You better know it. And uh, we, we score, we go up seven to, to nothing early and they run a reverse the first drive of the second quarter on their sidelines. And I go tackle the guy and dislocate my shoulder. And um, that's not good if you're a quarterback. And um, I was able to finish the game on defense. I couldn't throw. So I played the whole rest of the game kind of one arm on defense we had a sophomore who had to come in and play. We lost 21-14. And, you know, I was able to finish the year. We won state. I played throughout the year. Came out four times. Had to have surgery at the end of the year. And I, I ended up getting to go to Arkansas. But it's just kind of funny how things work. It wasn't quite the way I envisioned it would happen. You know, I ended up going to Arkansas and, and, and played for three years before starting to get into coaching because, you know, one, I just wasn't good enough. And two, I had a pretty messed up shoulder. But I got to, to fulfill some of those dreams. I got to play college football. I got to get in some games, got to play at Arkansas. But, you know, life is, is unique. We always have it kind of think planned out in our, in our own head. And it didn't go the way I thought, um, but it's all turned out really well. Now, was, was coaching always the next step? Yeah, I always wanted to coach from a young age whenever I was done playing. Now, of course, like everybody else, I was going to play college and in the NFL, you know, I grew up, believe it or not, in Arkansas, where everybody loves the Cowboys. I was a 49ers fan because Joe Montana, Jerry Rice, John Taylor, Roger Craig, Tom Rathman, Brent Jones, you name it. Then it went on to Steve Young. Like, it was just – it was kind of like the Razorback basketball team, man. They were just – they were the standard in the in the late 80s, early 90s. And so, I, I you know, Bill Walsh was the coach, and I just – that's who I wanted to be. Um, and so, there's really two things. That's one, and, and, and I always know I wanted to. It just happened sooner with the injury, but – not to get too far into the weeds, but the, when I knew I wanted to be a coach and the reason I coach 
you know, my parents, they divorced when I was three years old and I had a, a biological father who was brilliant. He was a tax attorney, photographic memory, all that, but he was an alcoholic. And, you know, I'd say that's a disease. That's just, it, it crippled him. And, you know, I had somewhat of a relationship till I was about 13 with him and then really didn't. And then he passed away when I was 22. But when I was seven years old, my mother remarried a man named Phil Phillips, who is there in Springdale, Arkansas. And I didn't know it at the time. Uh, obviously, my mom got to make sure I, don't, I clarify this so I don't ever get in trouble. She's my biggest fan. I love her to death. And she's done everything for me to be here. But I didn't know at the time as a seven year old, obviously, how big of a deal that was for me when she married Phil, because ironically, Phil had played high school at Springdale, played small college ball, had a cup of coffee with the Vikings. But once he got done, he, he became a high school coach. And he coached for eight years, two different spots, four years at one, four at another, was about to take another job, was very successful, but was going to have to move and decided this high school coaching moving around, it's not glamorous, you don't make a ton of money. You know, he wanted to, uh, to do something different. And so he opened up his own printing company, took it from 19 uh, employees, 28 years later, my senior year of high school, I actually sold it to like 130 employees and was very successful, but he was a high school coach at heart. And when they remarried at seven, I didn't know the impact he would have on my life, but that saved my life. And combination of him just, you know, having that consistency and stability in the household and having him teach me in a lot of ways, how to be a man, ways I would have never known. And, and then having people like Gus Malzahn, Chris Wood, my other high school coaches, it's just funny the impact coaches had on my life in, in terms of the men in my life. And on top of that, I was blessed more than most, right? There's a lot of guys that I played with, a lot of guys we coach and recruit that maybe had no parents or one parent or certain situations. But to see the impact my coaches had on their lives or to hear my, who I consider my dad, Phil's former players 20 years later telling me stories about when he was their coach and with tears in their eyes, like just seeing that impact you have, that's really ultimately why I wanted to become a coach. I think a lot of people probably know your general career path. So I kind of want to fast forward through some of that and get down to the nuts and bolts of kind of the offense. And let me, let me actually take it a step back. So you're with Gus, clarify something. When you're the offense coordinator with Gus at Auburn, are you the OC calling the plays or is Gus the head coach calling the plays? And how does that world of being an OC, but also wanting to call the plays, you know, shape you? And I know there's some other moves that come, you know, after that, which we can get into. Yeah, a little bit of both. You know, I think early on I left, we won the national title in 2010 and I left and Pat Sullivan gave me the opportunity to be the office coordinator at, Sol at uh, Sanford. And, and Pat Sullivan is someone who, you know, he, he recently passed away last year, but he was a mentor for me. Um, I was only with him for one year. He gave me my first opportunity as a coordinator, but really what he did for me and just teaching me, um, one, he believed in me. And there's a lot to be said in that. Um, when I was the first time coordinator doing a lot of things wrong, you know, um, and, and two, he taught me, um, something that uh, really he and, and Phil, my dad, who I talked about earlier, he, he always had, had exemplified this to me. But once I became a coach, Pat Sullivan really showed me that, man, life's about people and relationships. And it doesn't matter if you're coaching or doing something else. But, man, just the, the way he um, believed in me, built me up, mentored me, taught me how to not just do the X's and O's, but like lead, a, lead an offensive staff and lead an offensive team and so I'd had a chance to learn that and call plays for a year. And then Gus hired me at Arkansas State and then obviously at Auburn. And 
there was kind of a back and forth. You know, early on, I was young. I would pretty much run the meetings throughout the week. Gus and I on Monday would kind of put the game plan together. I'd run it throughout the week. I'd run it all summer and all spring. And then on game day, he would kind of be the primary play caller. I would call a lot of third downs, a lot of red zone. Or if he got stuck, he'd say, what do you think? Or in between drives, we kind of did it together. Um, he was probably more the lead, but, you know, I'd say at least 70-30. Um, and, and that was probably good for me at that time in my career, um, learning. He had done it a lot. Uh, as things progressed, you know, I could tell Gus started to realize he needed to relinquish the play calling. And at times I did it totally by myself. Um, and at times it was hard for him to totally get out of it. And there's nothing wrong with that when you're the head coach and that's what you've done your whole life. But as a coach, for me, at some point, even when you're calling the plays, if you're calling someone else's system or, or whatever, like – Calling offense is really hard if you don't believe in everything you're doing. And, and the, the play caller and the quarterback have to be on the same page. And the play caller has to believe in the scheme and what they're doing. And I kind of got to a point where I just and, – and Gus and I have a great relationship. And we had a great conversation really a year before I left Auburn because I almost left the, the year before that. And it was like, you know, at some point you need to go do your own thing and get out from – because, you know, he and I both know he's going to be who he is. And I needed – that opportunity to go continue my development, my growth. And so when that opportunity finally came, I was able to do it. And I'm really grateful to, to Randy Etzel and Sonny Dice and, and now Coach Diaz, who have given me those opportunities to kind of take what I learned, the foundation, the, the philosophy of, of what I believe in as a coach. A lot of it I did learn from Gus or from Chris Wood. But, you know, then to obviously kind of put my own personality into it and the staffs that I work with and you know, it's we don't run the same offense Gus runs. There's a lot of similarities, um, and I'm very grateful for a lot of the things I learned. But but having that opportunity, it's like certain things in life you can only learn until you do it, right? Like yep. you can't ever have – no one can prepare you to be a parent until you have a child. You know, there's there's no, man, there's no manual for it. <laughs> and, um, you know, you've got to do it to, to learn and to, to grow and make some mistakes and – and, and then, you know, obviously learn how to do things. Same thing with no one can prepare you to be married now until you've been married. Um, and so it was kind of that, it kind of got to that point with me is I just needed to be able to go have full autonomy and do it. And, and that became, uh, you know, ultimately a good thing for, for me uh, just kind of my career path. So when you're the OC at Sanford, right, I think everyone, when I, like you said, in any business, right, as you, as you continue to climb in your, whatever career you're in, if you have any drive, right, you always think you want and can do the next job. And then you yep. get in the seat and you go, well, wait a second. They didn't tell me about this or that. So what did you <laughs> learn being the OC at Sanford and Arkansas State? And how do you think that helped you when either you were calling plays at Auburn or then really moving out on your own at UConn and ultimately SMU and now at Miami? I think there's two main things I learned that year at Sanford that have really helped me. Um, when I first got there, to your point, I mean, that, Pat hired me because they averaged 17 points the year before. Um, had a pretty good defense there. They could never get over the hump and make the playoffs, and they just couldn't score. Had a senior quarterback coming back who was okay, and they liked him, but they just hadn't ever made it work. And to your point, I kind of came in there, came in there thinking, "Hey, you know, I'm going to turn this thing around. And I'll have the next big job, and I'll move here and do that and do this." And nothing wrong with it, you know. You want to have goals and aspirations. And I remember, and it was in June, we were off, and I remember sitting in my office. There was nobody else in the building. And it just, for some reason, it hit me. Uh, we'd already had spring ball. And I remember looking out the window and I was looking over the field. And I just thought, man, how blessed am I? I'm, I think I was 27 years old. And I'm the offensive coordinator calling plays at a place like Sanford for a Heisman Trophy winner and Pat Sullivan. 
to think that when I was 17, I knew I wanted to coach. Would I ever think that would happen? And at 27, I'm an offensive coordinator. I remember just thinking, man, how blessed am I? Like, just enjoy where I am. Just do the best I can. Now, quit worrying about winning and doing this and doing that and getting the next job. And I really genuinely did that. And I've kind of taken that approach ever since is, you know what? Be where your feet are. Enjoy what you're doing. Because the reality of it is, if you don't do really good where you are, that next opportunity is not coming anyways. And you can't do the best where you are if you're not fully immersed and invested and committed to it. And that's hard to do sometimes, right? There's distractions in the world. But uh, it's kind of ironic as I did that, my mindset changed. And next thing I know, after one year, Gus has hired me to go to Arkansas State, step up to Division One, And that was hard to leave because I was happy at Sanford. And then a year later, I'm, the OC, and I'm 29, I'm the OC at Auburn. And I'm like, wow. But it was when my mind sh mindset shifted from, what's next, next thing, next thing to just being in the moment, being where your feet are and being the best you can be then and enjoying the journey. I think the second thing I learned that year was X's and O's are important. You got to have good scheme. You got to put your plays in position to be successful. But just like I said, life's about relationships and people. And if you can have relationships with those kids, you know, Pat Dye would always say at Auburn, you can coach them as hard as you're willing to love them. And there's a lot to be said for that. If those guys know you care about them and you change the culture from making sure they know you believe in them, giving them confidence, kind of having that confidence permeate your staff on offense and permeate your players. It's a daily thing because winning's an attitude and a mindset and it's a habit. It doesn't just happen. You got to develop winning habits. You got to develop a confidence and a mindset. You're going to be successful. If you do that and you get the ball to the right players, it doesn't always have to be the perfect scheme, the perfect X's and O's you'll win games and you'll improve. We went from 17 points a game to 28 in the one year I was there. 28 is not exceptional, but it is an 11 point jump. And I did a lot of things wrong as a coach. Schematically in my first year, I remember after that, I was thinking, man, I'm going to be so much better in year two. And then, you know, I moved to Arkansas State, but I did a lot of things wrong, but we were still better because as a staff, we developed relationships with each other, with our players. They knew we cared about them. We could coach them hard. They knew we believed in them. We helped them believe in themselves more. And ultimately, we performed better, even when sometimes I may not have been putting them in the best position schematically. Um, you know, look, it kind of goes back to the whole reason why I wanted to coach with the father figure and the coaches. I mean, as men, we want to hear just a couple things from whoever those father figures or influential men in our lives. We want to hear that I love you, I'm proud of you, and I believe in you. That's what we need to hear. And I've tried to take that approach to the guys that I get to coach as well. And those are probably the two biggest things I've learned. Now, hopefully I've become a better X's and O's coach over the last 10 years. But those two things, that's got to be the foundation. So when you come into Miami and we're jumping all over the place, how important is it to do to establish what you just said, believe, hope, love before you even put a plan? It's 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 uh, it's vital. I mean, that's the first thing we talked about um, here when I got here with the offensive staff, once everybody was in place. You know, Coach Hickson and Coach Field were staying from from the previous season, and then Coach Likens and Coach Justice come in. And we just talked about this was right before spring ball started. Man, we just got to make sure these guys know we care about them. That's our goal this spring. We did, yeah, we wanted to get a, we wanted them to have the foundation of playing fast with tempo and the X's and O's and all that. We were going to be simple in the spring, but we wanted them to know, man, we care about them, we believe in them, they can be great we can be good and we got to do it together. And we knew we had to capture that relationship piece before anything else would have mattered because they really don't know. They really don't care. The players really don't care totally what you know, unless they know you care about them. And as soon as adversity hits, if they don't know you care about them, 
you're going to lose them. You know, you better be really, really good at the X's and O's and winning a lot of games if you don't have those relationships. And so that was our goal anyways. Now, obviously, we got four practices in and then the, the quarantine is hit and COVID is hit. And so it's made that really challenging over Zoom until we were able to get back together, you know, late in July. I still think our staff's done a really good job. And I think our kids feel a difference in just our confidence level and them, our confidence level in what we're doing. Uh, there's no panic, but most importantly, we've tried to develop those relationships with those kids so they know when we coach them hard or when we're hard on them or we give them tough love or, or when we tell them good things, they know where that is coming from. And I think that's, you know, there's some things we could do better X's and O's and there's some things we'd like to do more of or this or that. But at the end of the day, I think that's been the biggest reason we've been able to slowly start to improve on offense. And how aware are you coming into this at Miami that you're the third OC in three years, right? New staff. Some guys have had three, three different position coaches. So how aware are you of that as you're talking to your staff in your room about the confidence and, and, and belief and et cetera? But also, hey, look, these guys got a lot of stuff in their head. We have to be mindful of that. Or are you mindful of that? Uh, yeah, very, very aware of it. Very mindful of it, I think, from the standpoint of that these kids have not had any consistency. And, you know, I think consistency – um, gives you a chance to be successful and success breeds confidence. And you can't get to it being confident in, until you've had some consistency and some success. And um, so we have to be mindful of that. We knew that as coaches at the same time, we wanted to come in and, and, and give these guys a clean slate. Like the past doesn't matter. And I'm one of those guys. I think you can look at things two different ways. People can look at what you don't have and think about what you don't have and all the limitations, or you can look at what you do have. And I'm just one of those guys. I'm very positive. I believe in what we have, what we can make out of what we have, not what we don't have. As a coach, look, you have to be cognizant of what you don't have or where you're weak and what you're not good at, but let's focus on what we are good at. Let's focus on our strengths. Let's find what they are. Let's, let's develop those. Let's try to get really good at those. Um, so we had to be conscious of those things as coaches. So we would maybe, handle the guys the right way, but by no means did we want to say, you know, this guy was a bad player on tape last year, so he has no chance. That's not fair because we've seen guys that are helping us this year that didn't do much last year. And maybe guys that did a lot last year that aren't doing as much this year, but last year is the past. The past has no impact on the present unless you let it. So we've tried to kind of take that mindset and go full speed ahead. I didn't watch any of the games from last year. The scheme didn't matter. Yeah, none of that mattered. I did watch clips of players to try to get a feel for, hey, after watching 20 clips of Mike Harley, what I think he's good at. But I, I can't tell those kids with good faith, this is a fresh start. We're only worried about moving forward. We don't care about the past. If I don't do that myself, if I've gone back and looked and, and re-examined the past so much. So all we really cared about is getting to know them, building those relationships, and let's move forward and let's focus on what we have. So I asked this question to Manny Diaz. We usually catch up, you know, before the season starts. So I'm curious to get your answer. How do you teach tempo? You have to do it. It's got to be who you are all the time. You got to practice that way. You can't practice slow and play fast. It just doesn't work. And so really a big credit to Coach Diaz as a defensive-minded coach for allowing us those opportunities to practice fast. Um, I remember in those four days of spring, we were humming. We were going as fast as maybe I ever have anywhere and just the way we were practicing. And, and you got to trust it early. We're trying to set, you know, we had to be really simple early because we're trying to get our guys into the habit of getting lined up, playing the next play and doing it fast, more so than even the scheme. Like early on, you're kind of, hey, we'll coach the scheme on film. We'll correct it. We'll coach the fundamentals on film. But right now, 
we have to get these guys lined up and, and just used to playing fast and that being a way of life. And you have to do that most of the practice. Look, there's individual periods. There's every now and then some periods with the defense where we don't go crazy fast, but we have to do that all the time if that's who we want to be because it's, it's just too hard to go slow, go fast, go slow, go fast. And then if you get that habit down, then when you want to go slower, it literally is just, I don't call the play as fast. <laughs> They're ready to run it. I just like don't coach, call it as fast. Coach, what's going on, man? Come on, call the play. Right. We naturally slow it down without them having to think about it. But if you give them like, hey, we got a really fast tempo, we got a medium fast tempo, and we got a slow tempo, kids don't – that doesn't work because in their eyes it all just defaults to there's only one really fast tempo. Everything else is take your time. And so you have to have one speed, warp speed all the time. And then, like I said, without them really knowing, once you get the habits down uh, – and we're good right now. We're not where we need to be. But for year one, we're there. You know, we're playing fast. We're not playing as fast as we'd like to because you also have to execute at a high level to play fast. But once you get that one speed down, then, like I said, I can, as a play caller, instead of calling the play immediately when one play ends, I can wait five seconds, ten seconds. And that naturally slows it down without our guys really ever changing their operation. How fast does it go in your head? Do you even have to look at a call sheet? No, I, I, I don't hardly ever look at it during the drive. Um, you know, maybe if it's a big third down or a red zone call, I'll, I'll kind of glance down at it. But, um, you know, you kind of know uh, in between drives, you, com you communicate, you talk to the guys as coaches. We talk, hey, we want to get to this, this and this. And you kind of have your opening play to start a drive. And then you kind of know where you're wanting to go. And it's a lot of feel if you want to play fast. If you're looking down at a call sheet and trying to check stuff off and, oh, it's second and five. Well, what do I have for second and five? It just doesn't work. And um so it's a lot of it's getting into a rhythm and at times you're really in a rhythm at times you're not. And I think you just have to have those things that when you kind of get out of rhythm uh, every now and then it's okay to slow down, get back on track, get in rhythm. But you know, that's, that's just kind of the way it's, it's worked for me anyways. Been a lot of talk as well, coach Lashley about, you know, simplifying things, not maybe oversaturating your players' minds, uh, getting them to, to build reps, which reps build confidence. Um, can you give me an example of what in your offense makes it easy or for a player like we hear people talking about it but I, I'm always curious as to what does that actually mean well I think terminology can bog people down um, I think as coaches it can be real easy for us to try to be the smartest guy in the room or have we have I mean, as coaches we can have a lot of really great ideas but if either our guys don't understand it or can't execute it or if we haven't built up enough reps of doing it to where it doesn't really matter the defensive look we get our guys can react and execute it, then the play is only going to be as good as, you know, maybe, hey, it just worked because we got the perfect look for it. You, you've got to be able to have people to understand that you've got to rep plays hundreds of times, not five times. You can't just put a play and rep it five times and expect it to, to work consistently. Now, maybe if it's a trick play or a one-off for a game plan, you get four or five reps and you're working it, knowing it'll be good for this opponent. But your base philosophy of who you are has to be good and repped tons of times. So in order to do that, you can only rep so much. I think the second time is just the long terminology, you know, like you see over the years in the NFL, they're actually shortening their terminology. But, you know, if you just have all this word to tell everybody what to do, like this sentence, all this wording, it just, it just, it creates a lot of pause, slow down thought in the brain and no reaction. And that's when, you know, guys don't play as fast as their ability allows them to. They get confused. There's too much to listen to. Whereas, you know, you could have a play that's a sentence long and, or you could just call it, you know, 
banana bread, whatever you want to call it. One word. I love banana all, bread, by the way. I love banana bread. Do. Exactly. It's we've never actually named a play banana bread, but we've talked about it many times. About chocolate chip banana um, bread. Yeah, even better. Yeah, but, that's right. You know, that's a trick play. But <laughs> you know, I think guys can associate, hey, when I hear banana bread, I know I got a corner route or I know it's this protection or I know I've got this blocking responsibility. And so as a coach, it's our job to try to system-wise from a formation to motion to play to alignment, try to make everything as concise as possible, shorten the verbiage, make it very repetitive to where, you know, if I'm an outside receiver, I know I always line up here or here. I know if I hear this, I do this. If I hear this, I do that. And now they're just reacting instead of a lot of thinking during the game. And um, that's probably the biggest thing. I think some other things we do, like our outside receivers, you know, even when I played forever, they still do at Auburn. You, we, you know, would flip them. The last three years, we just leave them one on the right. Like, for example, Pope plays on the right and D plays on the left. And that helps them immensely because now they don't have to learn the same play, but both ways. They just know if I hear this, I do this. If I hear this, I do that. And uh, we let the slots kind of adjust more. So just any little thing you can do um, to create consistency, to create um, kind of rules that um, don't ever change are easy to remember and repetitive. I think that allows then your playmakers to take over because I know it's a long-winded answer, but I've always believed this now. And as coaches, even I, I we all do, I still mess this up, but I can have a very average pl a play call that versus the look they just gave us may not be the best call. As a matter of fact, it could even be a bad call sometimes. But if that play is one that we've ran hundreds of times and our guys know how to react and make it right no matter what, then a lot of times their ability to make things right will overcome the poor play call, whereas a great play call with no execution is going to look the same. It's going to be just an incomplete pass or a no gain. And so there's that fine line as coaches we're always trying to balance. Let's backtrack just a little bit on Miami. You, all, you talked before about be where your feet are, be in that moment when you're at Sanford, right? Don't think about the next thing. So you're at SMU. And I don't know, Manny calls you, you call Manny. An opportunity presents itself to come to Miami. Let's just put it to you that way. What intrigued you? Well, to your point, I wasn't looking to leave. Um, Sonny Dykes had been great to me the last two years. Um, really let me and our offensive staff kind of evolve our system into what we're more of right now. And, you know, full autonomy and just kind of letting me, uh, you know, grow and do what I love to do. And it was a really good situation. Um, professionally, our family really loved living in Dallas. And then I had a guy like Shane Bichelle who was coming back. Really, everybody was coming back on offense. We had a really good year offensively, but all signs pointed to we would be better this year. So wasn't planning to leave, wasn't looking to leave. And, you know, I've known Manny since we would go against each other in our Auburn Mississippi State days or Auburn Louisiana Tech days and always had a lot of respect for him. And, you know, when he kind of reached out, I really – wasn't listening to many of hardly anybody really. It was almost like, no, we're just staying. We're not really even looking. But when he reached out, I think it was a couple things. One, knowing who he is, you know, I I think he's definitely the right man for this job right now, and and I think he's been super successful in the business for a reason. Just knowing the person he is and the coach he is, I think too, it's Miami, and I've said it before. It's I'm not numb to what's been done here. I mean, I grew up in the the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, and I know the history and what can be done here. And I think just the more Coach Diaz and I talk, um, the opportunity to come here and and try to um, do something on the offensive side of the ball that they've been able to do on the defensive side of the ball was intriguing. 
and um, ultimately just became, you know, too good of an opportunity to pass up. Offensive philosophy. I, you, I was going do, doing research for this, and you talked about everyone wants to give offenses a name. Is it this? Is it that? Is it whatever? And I don't even know if you you have a name for your offense, but you just mentioned about how Sonny Dykes really let you take autonomy of your offense. And you've mentioned previously in this podcast that even Gus Malzahn's offense has morphed over time. And 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 you guys have talked about hey, getting out on your own and, and creating the Rhett, your offense, so the the offense that Rhett Lashley believes in. So if you take all the pieces together from your past you know, whether it was in high school or as a GA or under Gus or on your own at UConn and SMU, what are the pieces of your offense that you have pulled together that is now your offense? That's a good question. You know, I think I probably struggle to answer that sometime because I don't really consider it my offense. I don't know. I don't love that. To me, it's the offensive staff. It's our offense. Um, It's our offense here at Miami. It was our offense at SMU. I think sometimes that's why I probably struggle to put a name on it because to me, it's uh, 10 people are better than one. And if there's 10 guys in a room, even if one guy only gives you one idea the whole year, that's helped. And um, what I do think um, has kind of become is, you know, when I played, like we go back to my background, we played really, really fast in high school. And then over the years, I think one of the things that that Gus has done such a good job of is, you know, his ultimately, though, his, his foundation was that running game started all the way back at Hughes, Arkansas. And as you get into the leagues like the SEC and you have to be able to run the football to win, which I firmly believe in. Ultimately, Auburn's still no huddles. They don't play really fast. Um, they run the ball. They do take shots and play action. I think going out and being at UConn and being at SMU, some of the things that, you know, we finally decided, hey, let's play fast. If we're going to say we're a no huddle team, we're going to play fast and play physical. Let's do it. And so I just think kind of over time we've found ways to, like you said, be simple for our guys that allows them to play fast, get lined up quick and still put stress and pressure on a defense. The whole goal is to look really complicated to the defense and everything happen really fast, but be very simple for us. And that's a hard kind of ground to find. Uh, I still believe firmly and you got to run the football to win. You got to throw the ball to score and you got to be balanced. Um, but I'd say that the, the passing game, you know, whether it be vertically down the field, whether it be quick game and and the RPO world has, has definitely been something that we've changed. The easiest thing I can tell you, we've probably taken parts of what I've got background with, with Gus, you know, some air raid philosophies and how to practice and some things to do. Kind of always ran the same past concepts, but some different ways to teach it and coach it that have been really good. And guys like Rob Likens has been in that system as well. And I spent two years with some guys on the staff at SMU that had. And um, even stuff that they were doing at Baylor back in the mid, uh, you know, 2012, 13, 14, 15 um, on some play action stuff. And we kind of just put it all about two years ago at SMU and just kind of, you know, took a big melting pot and it came out what it is. And so I don't have an answer. You know, I think it's more of a power spread. We do want to spread the field. We want to make the, the defense defend the whole field. We're not air raid at all. Uh, we, we believe in being physical, having a downhill run game. Um, but at the same time, defend, making defenses defend the whole field vertically and horizontally, playing fast. We want to be known as a fast team. Um, and so that's why, you know, try to be concise for our guys. We're, we're fast and physical. That's all we want to be. We want to play fast. We want to, you know, have fast tempo, but we also want to play fast. And we want to be physical. And we want to make a defense defend the whole field. And that's when we're at our best. And so that's probably the best answer I can give you. You mentioned Rob Likens, who, who's had a lot of experience coaching college ball. Garen, Justin, they came in with you. You kept Stephen Field and Eric Hickson. How important were those hires and blending who, who stayed, who came on, as you just talked about, is your room, your staff, 10 voices, et cetera? 
I think it was important. Obviously, I know, um, you know, Eric Hickson and Stephen Field have done a great job here and coaching the guys they have and recruiting. And um, I know Coach Diaz and everyone in the building loved them. And so far, they I mean, they've been fantastic. And with, uh, you know, with an O-line coach and a receiver coach leaving, it, it gave us an opportunity to go out and, and get Garen and get Rob. And, you know, it's funny. I think this is my – I'm trying to think in my head. I think this is my 13th year of coaching, 10th as an OC. And probably the first five years as an OC, I would have not wanted to go hire a Rob or a Garen, guys that have been head coaches or been OCs, because I think there's probably some insecurity that all naturally comes with all of us. But now being – being out and doing it long enough, man, I just know the value of having good people around you. And we had an opportunity to get Rob here and get Garen here and keep Eric and keep, keep Steven. I mean, it just, I think when you have, especially guys like, like Rob and, and Garen who have been coordinators, it, it's kind of like we said earlier, until you've been into that role, you don't really know what it's like, but guys that have, I know this, I would be much better for another coordinator if I was helping him knowing that I've been a coordinator because you understand what that guy goes through and what he has to do and the decisions he has to make and how to balance everything. And so you can give much better input, much better suggestions, much better advice. And so I think having two guys with that experience at key spots, both in the run game and, and protection up front and kind of on the receivers on the perimeter, I think has been huge. We work, we all work well together, but just like I said, I mean, if, if we have a chance to get that many good coaches who have have backgrounds and similar styles of what I had. And so what we want to do, Everybody's on the same page, um, you know, and, and we can kind of build and morph this thing here, what it fits for our guys here at Miami together. So to me, it was just a no-brainer to have those guys, and I'm, I'm glad Coach Diaz was, was able to get that done. Just talking about coming over, taking over, new staff, pandemic, COVID, time off. You talked about the quarterback. You had at SMU, the quarterback that was coming back. Now let's talk about your quarterback at Miami in terms of De'Ara King. Forget what he's done on the field with all of those ex ex you know, external uh, issues, for lack of a better word, that were shaping college football, not just Miami. How important was it having him? Having him, uh, a fifth-year guy, an experienced guy, a leader, a veteran, even if he hadn't run your offense, to have his presence? Well, I knew it was going to be big. I mean, I remember when he got here thinking – yeah, him being a great player is important, but him being the leader that I've witnessed him be uh, as we would compete against him over the last few years was, was the biggest thing. But I had no idea how big of a deal it would be. Um, one, because he's just – Derek is so consistent. He's the same, same young man every day, which has been great to coach. It's, it's why he's successful, and it's bled over into the personality of our offense. and Our guys really – that calm confidence, they all, they all really have taken hold of that. Um, and in a year like this, it's been huge. But just to see what De'Eric himself has been through this year personally and for him to not – it never change him, um, man, it's just it's, – it, it's hard to put into words how phenomenal what he's done this year personally and for us as an, as an offensive unit and as a team. Aside from the fact all the yards throwing and running and touchdowns and this and that, just who he is is by far been the biggest deal because – not only has he given us a leader, because um, teams that have the leadership come from within and the players are so much better than teams that have it have to come from the coaches. And, hey, there are times we have to do that. But having it come from him has been huge. But also it's like serves as an example to all the other guys and the young guys that they start to take on that personality. Then we don't just have one leader. We have multiple leaders. We have multiple guys with that mentality. And, you know, we're not there yet, but it's, it's been huge. And I think just trying to transform, I know, offensively the mindset and the culture we want to have. 
as an OC, when you have that guy in the room versus when you don't have that guy in the room, the difference is fill in the blank. Well, I think it allows you to be more aggressive as a play caller when you really have a lot of confidence in that guy. Um, you know, it's hard to call plays defensive. And we've, those of us that have done it have all been there at the quarterback position when, you know, you may be not totally sure what the young man's going to do or what you're going to get, or he's just young. You sometimes try to not put him in bad situations, but by doing that, you kind of play it safe or don't, you're not as aggressive. Um, or when something really bad happens, it's almost like touching a hot stove. You kind of retreat a little bit. Um, when you have a guy like the Eric at quarterback that you trust that he's going to do what he's coached to do and he's going to do his job and do it at a high level. He's not going to be perfect. Uh, and when bad things happen or we get a bad look, he's going to take care of the ball and sometimes make something really good still happen. It allows you to be aggressive as a play caller. It also allows you when bad things do happen, a turnover, a, a sack, a three and out, to come back and still be aggressive the next drive because that's what you need to do. Uh, but sometimes it's a lot harder to do that, I think, than people think. And um, just having that consistency and that confidence in that guy uh, really allows you as a play caller to, to be aggressive and, and to call plays with confidence. All right, last, last things, I'm going to let you go. You mentioned earlier uh, family, connections, influence, your stepdad. You have two sets of twins? Mm-hmm. I do. How's that? <laughs> it's insane. Um, <laughs> you know, we, we joke all the time. Uh, we like our little hashtag when my wife posts pictures is we made a zoo because everything's two by two. Right. And, um, you know, um, it's a blessing. Unlike anything I would have ever imagined. We, we had our boys, they're, they're 10 years old now. They were born in 2010. The irony of this week two of the 2010 season which is the Cam Newton season at Auburn the year we won the national title. Our boys were born on a Friday night and our Friday afternoon. It just so happens that Thursday night we were playing the ESPN game in Starkville, Mississippi, where Manny Diaz was the defensive coordinator of the Bulldogs. And uh, we somehow won that game 17 to 14. He put the clamps on Cam probably better than anybody did all year. And then the next day our boys were born and we went on to win the national title that year. So that was a pretty good year in our household. And then to fast forward to 2016, the last year I was at Auburn, um, before the season in May, our, we had twin girls. And it was funny because we had the boys and my wife. I mean, the first three or four months with any baby, I'm sure is the same. But for us, twins is all we knew. So, I mean, it was like survival in the middle of a football season. I would come home at 11 or 12 every night and it was like talking her off a cliff. Uh, we got to December and the season was almost ending and we finally saw the light at the end of the tunnel a little bit, but I joked with her when she would be complaining or whatever. I said, ah, don't worry about it. We'll have twin girls and then we'll be done. And, uh, six years later, uh, we had not had any other kids. We get pregnant with twin girls and I'd forgotten all about it. She reminded me and I don't, she, I think she threw something at me actually, but, um, you know, it's one of those, it's hard. Every day is chaotic. There's never a quiet moment in our household because if three of the four are quiet, one of them's not. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but just been pretty cool. Being an only child, didn't have a brother growing up or anything to see the boys get to have a, a brother, the girls have a sister. And, man, it's just a blessing. I mean, that's what we're here for. That's the most important job is being mom and dad. And um, to think that, that God chose me and her to, to have two sets of twins, kids we love, and, and get to do life and and lead them as it's a great responsibility, but man, just, it's hard to put into words the blessing it is, as you know, once you've had kids, it really changes you. It changes your perspective. We're all pretty selfish people in general, 
and I still am sadly, but when you have a kid, it really, it alters perspective. You know, it, 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 it kind of sheds light on how selfish we had been. And then when you have girls, it really, really changes your mindset. I bet so, it does. Uh, I bet it those does. little girls, I mean, we got a four-year-old little Scarlett. She runs our entire family from four years old, and she's really good at it. So it's funny. When the boys leave at 18 and go to college, I'm going to have – I think the girls will be about 12 or 13. I'm going to have a hard four or five years there without them. But it was funny, too. The, the girls were born, and I think I took the boys like two days later while mom and the girls were still at the hospital. I took them to watch like one of the Avenger movies. And we're driving to the movie theater. The boys are – you know, five or six, I think they're six years old. And Thomas, my little analytical one's like, Hey dad, we now have three boys and three girls in the family. It's even. And I was like, Oh son, you've got a lot to learn. There's nothing <laughs> even about these numbers right now. So, uh, but yeah, it's awesome. Oh man. And then the, the boys are, are they like big in the NFL jerseys or like, I saw a restaurant Instagram like you got collect, you guys are like big on collecting jerseys. Well, they're, they're into that mode. They're big on everything ball, right? And, and actually, I think the jersey, you know, Chandler Cox plays for the Dolphins, and he's the fullback, and he played for me at Auburn, recruited him out of a popka, and they just love Chandler. He would always come over to the house at Auburn. So he actually was at, uh, I think, our Florida State game this year and ran into Lauren and the kids up in the, a box or something he was in and took a picture with the boys. They were loving seeing Chandler. Well, he sent them one of his rookie jerseys and signed it, and so they just – you know, they're, they're kids. They're kind of at that age where they know what, what's going on. They love all the players on our team. They love game day and, you know, NFL, everything about just kind of what we all remember as young boys when we started to really, if we love football, start to kind of love just everything about college athletics or the NFL. And unfortunately, they know enough now that I'll come home and they'll kind of rip my play calls pretty good. But, um, yeah, they're into it, man. They love the jerseys. They love the hats. They love the gloves, the gear. I mean, all that stuff. All right, buddy. I'm going to let you go with that. But we're going to end on the most important note, right, which is family. Uh, I appreciate your time. This is great. Thanks for taking us behind you, Red. I appreciate it. Josh, I appreciate you, and I'm just thankful to be here with you.